Hello and welcome to the Pet Purpose Podcast. This is a podcast for passionate pet parents who want to take pet parenting to the next level. Our audience are always looking for ways to provide the best care for their companions. I'm Brett the Vet, and each episode I will share useful information and key takeouts that you can easily adopt to magnify the care, adventure, and excitement that you enjoy by having committed to becoming a dedicated pet parent just like me. This episode of the Pet Purpose Podcast is brought to you by tailovation.com.au. Tail Ovation is the site for passionate pet parents looking for credible information and quality products for their pets. Visit tailovation.com.au. It's tails up to that. In this two-part episode, my guest and I will be talking about lumps, bumps and tumours in our pets. So let's jump straight in. What do you say about that, boy? In today's episode of the Pet Purpose Podcast, we're going to be discussing the topic of lumps and bumps on the skin of our pets. And to share the mic with me, I've invited a special guest to join me on the show. His name is Dr. David Lurie. Now, Dave's more than just a guest. He's a very special friend of mine. We went, to, uh, we went through vet school together. And in fact, um, we were in the same clinics group in our final year at vet school. And after finishing up uh, vet school, Dave moved to the USA uh, to specialize as a vet in oncology, which is the study of cancer. And he's now a rare breed of specialist veterinarians living in Australia because he's double boarded in both medical oncology and radiation oncology. So Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. It's a pleasure to be here with you, mate. So before we dive into discussion around lumps and bumps on our pets, perhaps briefly just let our listeners know what it means to be double boarded. So what exactly is it to be board certified? Right. Well, there's there's different pathways to achieve a specialist certif- certification, which is essentially what, is, what it means to be uh, board certified. It's just uh, achieving specialist status. And um, depending on where you do your training, uh, you are a member of different colleges, for example, um, who uh, have the oversight and and run the auspices of these various colleges of of medicine. So, for example, um, I did my training in the United States and I did my medical oncology training through what is known as the uh, American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. And that's a residency training program that's uh, three years long. Um, and then at the end of that, you take a certifying an exam. Uh, there's a couple of exams along the way, as well as publication requirements to get the qualifications to write that certifying exam. But once you've passed that certifying exam, gone through your residency training and fulfilled the other um, requirements, you will achieve a specialist status in that discipline. Um, Referring to, to myself as being double-boarded, I, I then stayed on in academia to do a second residency training in an, in an allied field, which is radiation oncology, um, which happens to fall under the auspices of a different college. It's the American College of Veterinary Radiology. Um, similarly, it's a, a three-year program um, where you, you go through various requirements, uh, seeing certain cases. You have to log up a certain case number of different types of um, uh, species with different tumor types over that period of time. 
uh, get your publications and then uh, complete a certifying exam successfully to get uh, specialist certification in that regard as well. The process is quite similar here in Australia, um, except it's under the auspices of an Australian and New Zealand college as opposed to the American uh, format. And there's a, similarly a European college as well uh, for our colleagues um, across the pond, so to speak. Yeah. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to, you know, give our listeners an idea of the degree of specialization involved. So, you know, it's no mean feat and well done uh, to you for your achievements in, in that field. Okay, so let's talk about our pets, Dave. And uh, what I'd like us to focus on in our discussion today is around the topic of uh, lumps and bumps on our pets. And this is an important topic because the skin's obviously something that we see and feel every day on our pets. And certainly when interacting with them and engaging with our pets, um, we may come across some lumps and bumps. Now, obviously, our, our pets, certainly dogs and cats, can be covered by a bit of fur, and this can obscure some of these lumps and bumps. But generally, uh, if we come across a lump or bump, there's three sort of main categories that would um, cause these lumps and they would be things like inflammation, uh, infection and then growths or, or neoplasm and in fact sometimes it can even be a combination of all three of these that are that are causing that lump. So Dave let's unpack these briefly um, and then we'll see the discussion more in the direction of skin growths or, or, or neoplasms. So, um, as you rightly point out, uh, you know, it's it's probably good never to have a tunnel vision approach to a lump or bump because there can be some perfectly benign um, causes of them, and uh, you know, it should never be neglected either. So, you know, the appropriate level of of workup is is really what it's all about. Um, and I guess there's a couple of um, parameters which I would say should help guide decision-making in how best to, to approach these findings. So if you have a patient that, that uh, has, a, has a sudden and rapid growth, um, you know, that could be one of two things. You know, if there's a history of trauma, for example, like a cat that's been out wandering the, the neighborhood and comes back, um, you know, after a night or two on the town, so to speak, um, and suddenly has a, a large swelling over the limb or something like that, um, can't automatically assume that that's a cancer. It's probably something that might have been related to a cat fight, to, could have had an abscessation or, or something else along those lines. Um, probably the, the patient would be feeling a little poorly at that point. So there's other, other clinical symptoms that can be um, you know, searched for and, and help to elucidate the process. But if you have a patient who's got a a long history of a bump that's kind of been evident but hasn't changed very much but then starts rapidly growing, I would be a lot more concerned in that scenario of, um, of a tumor that may have been somewhat benign that's starting to acquire uh, a malignant phenotype and, and become more aggressive. So that's certainly something that probably needs a greater degree of urgency and, and attention in terms of getting to the bottom of it. And at any rate... Um, probably the first step in, in evaluating these tumors other than going into your local vet office for a physical exam uh, where they can look at vital statistics and, and other um, 
other aspects of your general patient health or, or pet health, um, the, the more specific evaluation of that lump or bump would probably center around what we call a fine needle aspirate or harvesting some cells uh, by inserting a little needle into the, into the swelling, um, sucking back some cells, and then putting it on a glass slide to evaluate under a microscope. That's, that's usually a, a very non-invasive uh, and high yield diagnostic um, procedure to perform. And that can ha then help guide uh, further analysis as, as necessary. I guess the good thing about a, a far needle aspirate for our listeners is that uh, when, when your vet would do something like that on, on your pet, um, the good thing about it is that your pet doesn't necessarily need to be sedated or go under general anesthetic. Um, possibly some of the downsides or the limitations are that, you know, the vet's only uh, sucking up a few cells of that lump. And so it may have limitations in, in what it can reveal to your vet. Um, whereas if the vet wants to get a better idea of what that lump is, um, they would then do a, a biopsy. So maybe, Dave, just talk a little bit about, a bit more about um, biopsies. If, if someone um, takes their pet to the vet and the vet does a biopsy, what, what, what would that involve? Yeah, so that's perfectly correct. Um, you know, an, a needle aspirate, as you point out, being less invasive is, is quicker, less costly, and can be informative, but doesn't always yield the information that, that we're looking for. There are certain tumor types, for example, that don't what we call exfoliate cells very, very easily. And so um, you may be unfortunate enough not to get a, a representative sample to make the diagnosis. And in a scenario like that, where you still have a suspicion of an underlying tumor, um, a biopsy is indicated. So to elaborate on what that is as a difference, it's a bit more invasive because you're actually taking a piece of the tissue out of the patient and sending it off to a lab for analysis. Um, so that does tend to require a short uh, general anesthetic or, or a heavy sedation, depending on where the, the tumor may be located um, and the, and the uh, preferred um, mode of immobilization. But generally, it's a, a short general anesthetic. And um, there are different uh, instruments that can be used then to harvest the, the tissue. Um, the, probably the simplest is just a, a, what we call a wedge resection, which is using a scalpel blade to, to take a wedge of tissue out of a superficially located mass um, and then apply some sutures to close up the wound. Or um, we can use what's called a punch biopsy, which is certainly one of my preferred tools in, in the clinic. It's, a, it's a, a round cutting instrument of certain diameters. They range from two millimeters to eight millimeters in diameter. And, uh, and it's literally a, a punch into the swelling and then with a scooping action you can can scoop out a piece of tissue that can be put in formalin and sent out to the lab for analysis just um, on that point dave um the way i like to think of it and it might help our listeners a bit is a punch biopsy think of it as like a, a cookie cutter if you're baking and you've you know you're cutting out cookie shapes 
Um, it's a similar type of instrument um, to that. And, but as Dave says, it's obviously much smaller in, in size, but the, the techniques essentially very similar. Yeah, that's a good analogy to use, um, most definitely. Uh, and, and, you know, I know we're talking about sort of cutaneous lumps and bumps, so, so some of the other instruments for biopsies are probably not applicable for that, but there are, are instruments known as true-cut biopsies, which can, can actually target lumps or bumps that might be in body cavities, for example, uh, like a liver lesion or a splenic lesion or something like that. Um, those can be helpful, or um, certainly if the lesion is a swelling uh, under the skin but in the bone, um, then there's something called a jam sheety biopsy instrument, which is, is similar to a punch biopsy, but it's just a little bit more um, heavy duty because it's going into harder tissues and you have to be able to harvest a different type of cell. So, but the technique is fairly similar in all cases. And, you know, what's, what's key here is, is obtaining a, a diagnostic quality sample because um, the pathologist can only work with what's sent in. So it's very important to a get a get a representative section of the tissue mass. So again, depending where it is, sometimes you go directly into the center of the mass, but other times it's preferable to take the biopsy from the edge of the the wound or the lesion um, because the center may um, may yield uh, non vital cells, and that's just a, a function of how quickly sometimes these tumors can grow and they can cause what's called necrosis or cell death because they outgrow blood supply. So you may not get a truly uh, representative section, even though you've done a good sample harvest. So where you take the, the sample from is, is important in the decision-making paradigm as well. And, and obviously your vet can, can guide you through those steps. So if, if you find a lump on your pet, uh, obviously take it to your veterinarian. They will then do some investigations, um, one of which would be that fine needle aspirate where they suck up some cells, have a look at those cells under a microscope. Um, and then a more in-depth uh, diagnostic approach would be to take a biopsy. And as Dave mentioned, there's various types of biopsies and ways of um, harvesting that, that tissue. And then they would send off that material to uh, a laboratory and you'd have a specialist pathologist looking at those cells and determining what that might be. And so, Dave, cancer is a collective term. It's, it's, it's almost like saying fruit. Um, you know, there's bananas, there's apples, oranges, pears, and, you know, Different types of fruit are different colors, they're different shapes, they grow differently, they taste differently. And similarly with cancer, that's a collective term and there can be different types of cancers that behave differently, look differently, etc. So maybe just expand on the fact that not all cancers are the same um, and that they can be quite different. Yeah, so you you bring up a, a good point here, um, Brett. So when you know, there's a lot of sort of terminology that we use for granted, certainly in a clinical setting, that uh, in the layman arena may not may not all make sense. So you know, we talk about 
wounds, lesions, bumps, tumors, cancers, etc. And the semantics around that can be quite confusing. So I'll try to simplify it as 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 well as I can. Um, any any swelling that comes in, I guess the first step is to determine, as we said, whether it's benign or uh, a malignant uh, type tumor or a cancerous growth, I should say. Let me use that term and I'll elaborate. Um, as we've said, there's various methods that can be used to do that. Once we've determined it's not um, inflammatory or infectious and is indeed a type of a, a neoplasm or a, a, a I'm going to not use the word cancer specifically here because I'll explain why. But once we determine it's a neoplasm, meaning a, a, an abnormal growth of cells in the body, um, then we have to do some additional analysis. Um, when we want to def define what type of growth it is, we'll look at what tissue it's originating from. So that's one thing that can help classify um, these neoplasms into different diagnostic categories. So for example, we have in, in the skin and subcutaneous tissues, um, we have certain epithelial structures like uh, glands, for example, which tend to have a designation of being carcinomas or adenomas um, on a histolo histologic assessment. Um, or we have various connective tissue structures or mesenchymal structures, things like um, bone or or nervous tissue or uh, fibrous tissue. And those tend to, as a group, collectively be referred to as sarcomatous masses, um, sarcomas. And depending, again, which cell of origin they come from, um, you can break that down into, uh, for example, a, um, a nerve sheath tumor if it's coming from nervous tissues or something called a schwannoma. Uh, you could break that down into a fibrosarcoma if it's arising from fibroblast-type cells in the connective tissue. Uh, you can break it into uh, hemangiosarcoma when it's arising from blood vessel cells, for example. So that's kind of how you start to, to break up these various categories. Um, now, it, when we use the word cancer, everyone tends to think of the worst connotation, and I think that is probably appropriate in that Cancer for most people means a disease that has a high, uh, high degree of biologic aggression. It's not only locally problematic, but it tends to spread and metastasize around the body. That's kind of, I think, how most people think of the word cancer. Um, malignant is another way of, of describing that sort of cancerous situation. In other words, a growth that's malignant has a much higher potential to spread around the body and cause systemic effects beyond just a lump in the skin. Uh, whereas you can still have a neoplastic growth that's relatively benign in its behavior. So it, it's not an infection or inflammation. It is, it is an abnormal growth of cells, but it's less likely to behave aggressively, if that makes sense. So a benign growth versus a malignant growth, both of them can be uh, tumors or, or neoplasms, if you will, but they have very different potential in terms of their systemic ramifications. Uh, but then once it is riddled through the body, for example, a, a tumor of the toe that might spread to the lungs or lymph nodes or liver, then we're talking about a, 
a very aggressive cancerous process. Oh, that's great. And just an, a few things to sum up there. So for our listeners, uh, a neoplasm, if you break that word down, neo means new and plasia means cell. So as Dave was saying, it means new cellular growth. Um, and that doesn't always mean that that new cellular growth is malignant. As Dave mentioned, it can also be benign. And the examples that Dave was giving was to do with the origin, you know, which, which cells the, the cancer would originate from. So that's often how vets would name the cancer. And I guess on that point, Dave, can you tell us how what causes cancer? We, we know that a cancerous cell is an abnormal cell. It's not behaving like a normal cell. But what makes uh, a cell cancerous? Yeah, well, there's been um, volumes of literature devoted to that. And uh, again, I'll try to break it down to the simple sort of basics. But essentially, um, it's, it's speculated that every person and every, every mammal um, actually has at, at various points in their lives um, inappropriate cellular growth at somewhere in their body. Um, so for some reason, the, either there's a, um, uh, a lack of the breaking system in terms of halting abnormal cellular growth rate, or alternatively, there's some compromise in the body's ability to delete, um, cells that are abnormal out from circulation. So it's, we refer to that as, you know, the, the break or accelerator sort of phenomenon, either there's too much gas going in and, and these cells are growing too rapidly or there's not enough break in terms of being able to, um, to, to weed out these abnormal cells as they arise. And um, the weeding out process often has to do with immune surveillance, um, your body's ability to detect um, these cells as, as being abnormal. And this is the, this is the, the, the big conundrum because they are our cells, they're self cells. So they have, um, you know, the, the fingerprints of our own, um, genetic maker. And, and unless they are severely, uh, compromised, the body can have a very hard time as detecting them as being abnormal and, and then realizing they need to, to bring in the immune cells to, to delete them before they form a, uh, a growth that becomes autonomous in its in its potential to to suck in nutrients and oxygen and and then replicate in an uncontrolled fashion. So, yeah, that's it. Then there, there there's also various DNA insults that can occur that that can occur in cells to where they can acquire mutations um, mutations over time that again, either help these cells to evade the immune system or to grow uh, too rapidly. Um, you know, there's what we call uh, oncogenes, for example, that can be switched on and cause them to, to grow too rapidly. Or on the other side of the coin, um, tumor suppressor genes that can, that can be turned off because of various mutations in the cellular DNA. And, and those are the two main drivers, if you will, um, 
coupled with inappropriate immune surveillance that tend to result in this uncontrolled growth um, in, in the body. So that's a, that's a great analogy, the gas and the brake. And I think if, if, if our listeners think of, you know, perhaps when you cut yourself, um, that wound then starts healing, forms a scab and, and new granulation tissue, which is that pink tissue that starts healing. And then after a while, that regrowth and that repair stops. The body knows when to stop. Whereas when there's cancer in some way, shape or form, that trigger to stop and put the brake on is not there. And so it just keeps on replicating. These cells keep on replicating and that's when it forms this lump on our pet's body. All right, audience, that's a wrap for part one of this discussion. So let's sum up. Lumps and bumps in our pets can be caused by things such as an infection. They may be caused by inflammation or they may be growths, in other words, tumors. So what that means is that not all lumps equate to cancer. Now, some of the ways your vet would evaluate these lumps and bumps may involve physical examination together with taking samples of cells or pieces of the lump for further examination. There are various theories on how cancers form, some of which involve different triggers which can lead to abnormal cells. And if the body is unable to clean up and remove these abnormal cells, the abnormal cells can then go on to replicate further, potentially leading to tumors or growths. Benign growths do not spread much and they are not aggressive as compared to malignant growths which are more aggressive and tend to spread more. If you happen to discover lumps on your pet, it's best to get them checked out by your vet so that they can help determine if there's any cause for concern. This episode of the Pet Purpose Podcast was brought to you by tailovation.com.au. Tail Ovation is the site for passionate pet parents looking for credible information and quality products for their pets. Visit tailovation.com.au. It's tails up to that. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for being such a great audience. Please go ahead and share this episode with other passionate pet parents and do your bit to help create happy, healthy pets. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave a review. Remember, you're awesome and your pet thinks so too. Wouldn't you agree, boy? Bow, bow.